You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! めくらの世界に残されているたった一つの楽しみそれは触覚です中でも女の体の手触りが一番です温かくて柔らかくて「この子の見張りは私が引き受けるよ」安心してアトリエでいい彫刻をこしらえなさい私は次第に彼を愛するようになってしまったのですそして痛ければ痛いほど苦しければ苦しいほど喜びを感じるようになったのですダメもっとダんでダんでちょうだい Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike Boyd. Joining me is Mr. Elric Kane. Hey, thanks for having me back. Also back after far too long is the one and only Coffin John. Hello again. And、uh, yeah, it's been five years. Five years. That's crazy. Our appreciation of 1969 continues with our second look at an adaptation of Edo Wago Rampo's work, Blind Beast. Directed by Yasuzo Masumura, the film stars Mako Midori as Aki Shima, a model, and Eiji Funakoshi as Michio, a blind sculptor who becomes obsessed with her. He and his mother kidnap Aki and keep her in his warehouse studio, where the two become engaged in a game of cat and mouse as he tries to create a new form of art that only the blind can appreciate. 
Of course, we will be discussing spoilers galore in this conversation. So if you have not seen Blind Beast before, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. So, John, when was the first time you saw Blind Beast and what did you think? Well, the first time I saw Blind Beast was, uh, unfortunately, when it came out on DVD, which was, I think, 2000, 2001, around that time. Uh, before that time, Masumura was kind of a director that was, you know, well known in the Japanese community, but, um, unfortunately his, um, his works had just never really gotten out except for like in retrospectives and festivals. When I finally got to see it, um, I was really thrilled because I had read, uh, Blind Beast, the, the short story by, uh, Edogawa Rampo, as you had mentioned. To be honest, I was not disappointed uh, because I was told it was kind of like, for its time, very much the extreme cinema of its time, and then it is quite uh, lurid. How about you, Elric? Exact same history with it. I don't think I'd even heard of Massimer. I'm like you guys. I'm anytime Projection Booth uh, wants to do an, a slightly more obscure or totally bonkers movie, that's usually my uh, first pick. Um, and I think when this came out of Phantomus, it came out the same time as Manji. And I saw Manji first, uh, based on the cover and was a little thrown initially because of the, you know, the, I didn't even, I didn't know the historical context of that swastika or the reverse swastika. Uh, and I, that movie, utterly blew my mind it just was such a kind of an electric jolt of a movie even though it's just a uh it could have been seen as a fairly traditional uh, love triangle uh type of film just the way he i guess uh kind of there's this almost just slightly hyper uh stylized just just slightly more than what other japanese films were uh in the especially in the kind of the new wave ones as we'll get to and then uh, that led me to blind beast and then it couldn't have prepared me for just how uh, how far Blind Beast takes it. You know, it's a film that go- it literally goes all the way with its idea. And I think those kind of movies always stay with you, you know, forever. Exact same story. I didn't see Manji first. I saw Blind Beast first, but yep, same thing. Saw it on the DVD when that came out. And then I was just thirsty for Masamura films. And it has taken so long for more of his movies to come out. And it's still just a paltry handful of stuff that is available with English subtitles, and it's really kind of sad because his movies are fantastic, and they just seem to be all over the map, and there's a real debate as far as was he a new wave filmmaker, or was he kind of like a progenitor of that, or what, you know, how does he fit in, and... I don't really care. He just made some really freaking awesome movies. And it even though he was working for a major studio, was able to really put his mark on a lot of things. And just, uh, yeah, some wild stuff. I really can't recommend his work enough. And Blind Beast, I saw it when it was, came out on DVD, and it took my breath away. And it still hits me as hard these days watching it again. He feels incredibly contemporary. Like I watched this movie again, it just feels like it could have been made now. Not maybe, maybe not politically exactly now, but just the energy and filmmaking techniques in all his films. Giants and Toys, another one that felt very like modern. You can very much call him a forebearer of the new wave. Of course, the issue is with him is that um, if you have watched enough of his films, he 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 doesn't really plant himself firmly into any one particular genre. I mean, he does some have some thematic elements, you know, uh, elements of like, for example, individualism versus group uh, thought that uh, pop up in his films. But uh, very much, I think he was kind of ahead of its his time as far as um, 
you know, being able to be categorized within the new wave, which again is sort of a shame because, um, you know, as, as you have said, and as, as well, I can attest, you know, he has quite a few very good films. Uh, he has a couple clunkers, obviously. You can't uh, put out good stuff without putting out trash, too. But, um, you know, I think for the most part, he's still a director in the West that needs to be discovered. Um, and I think there are some, you know, at least some academics out there who are doing that just, you know, right now. Yeah, I know Rosenbaum has written about him quite a bit, and there are other people that have tried to unearth some more of his stuff. But yeah, you're right. He is all over the map. I mean, just looking at Manji, look at Giants and Toys you brought up, uh, look at um, Black Test Car, Red Angel. I mean, just those movies and then add Blind Beast into it, and you are on quite a journey with just those films. And it seems like individuality, I mean, to pop your head up and do something different in, in that uh, society at that time in terms of conformity seems really interesting. And I know we're going to do more biographical later, but the, the little, the detail that kind of struck me was that idea of him studying in Italy for a period, you know, leaving Japan to, to study under people like Fellini, uh, who else was it? Uh, it was Fellini, not Rossellini, obviously. But it, it just struck me as that's going to give you such a different perspective to return to the cinema. And, you know, even though he spent a lot of time uh, working under some of the, you know, major Japanese directors at the time, studio directors who in themselves were pretty edgy, uh, the, the Mizuguchi, in terms of Mizuguchi especially, I just, I think that already sets his viewpoint apart. I don't think you could return to that cinema and not bring something completely new. Yeah, the other... Uh- uh, Italian directors he's associated with are, were uh, Antonioni and uh, Visconti. Yeah, now that makes sense, Visconti especially. I was really glad that this movie starts from Aki's point of view and that she is our narrator throughout this entire film because that is not the case when it comes to the story that this is based on. It is told more from a uh, omniscient third-person point of view, but here we've got her, and that helps us not necessarily objectify her because we are shown all of these images of her in chains and naked and her flower, her body being, being turned into a flower. But yet she seems to be in control of the story and in control of her body, which is very important, especially as we go on, because there is so much discussion of control and who's in control of who. How is she using or being used when it comes to the story overall? And I thought it was really nice that she is our narrator. She's the one that introduces us to this world and takes us by the hand and, and plunges us into this. Masamura is careful to give us, you know, some perspective uh, from the artist's point of view. You know, that's I think that's really important because, you know, he never makes the artist to be like a complete villain, you know, cause obviously he's not in control of his own life to the degree that, you know, he's been raised solely by his mother and basically kept away from society. And is, you know, if, if anything, you could say naive about, you know, the situation at hand and, you know, what machinations evolve to allow, uh, Aki to sort of break his grasp at one point, but also to draw her back in. From Masamura's point of view, I think that's uh, kind of interesting to kind of look at things objectively rather than say, you know, here's the good guy and here's the here's the bad guy, you know, and you know, let them play out. Sorry, my dog wanted to contribute. 
he also makes her the most powerful character in the story by, by starting it this way. I think, I think she, in a, in a very strange sense, she always has the power in this movie, despite the fact, uh, and that power, I think, comes largely from experience. She's more experienced in, in life, uh, than the characters in this, and which is obviously a change from the story because the story is more of a, more of a serial killer type character, uh, whereas we're dealing with somebody who is kind of an innocent in terms of his exposure to the world. But, uh, so they set her up as somebody who finds fulfillment and being you know uh an object in a sense but like through author artistry not just uh, not just pure objectification but she actually the artistic unless she's being used in some way or being deified in some way she doesn't really uh have have meaning hasn't maybe found her own internal meaning and i think that opening scene by giving us her perspective how she views art uh before she meets him and he seems like much more of a kind of desperate figure i think it's uh, i think it's really powerful it's a really smart way to especially when physically she's not going to be in control all the time it's a really smart way to say but she still emotionally can be in control and it also seems like i, I love those the, the initial art seems like a little bit of an f you to japanese new wave the, it feels almost like oh this is the art scene and this is edgy japanese uh, new wave filmmakers and i'm gonna push way beyond girls wearing chains and looking kinky like i'm gonna push this film to a place you guys haven't seen yet which i thought was kind of funny yeah, he is kind of innocent. It sounds like he's never had sex. It sounds like he's never had a drink. And it takes us a while to find out just why that is and how much of a powerful force his mother is in his life. And I like that the mother is completely added whole cloth to this story, was not in the Rampo story whatsoever. And she becomes this huge driving force of the narrative when she wasn't even a part of the Rampo original. Yeah, that, well, no, that feels kind of a, uh, like psychotype influence. And also, I think that trouble of belief, the difference between an internal story you read and the having to make a movie is that feeling of, oh, we, how, how the hell did he get around? How did he get groceries? How did he do anything to make it believable, grounded in some sort of reality? And I think once you see her aiding him, uh, in the abduction, it all starts to be very believable. It also is interesting that in the story, he's described as being ugly. And there are even, at least in the paperback version I had, there were little drawings occasionally on some of the pages. And the, the drawings of him were very ugly. Whereas the actor who plays him is not ugly whatsoever. And he's, he's a really attractive guy. It's nice that they break away from that as well. So he's not just this creature, this blind creature going around and murdering people uh, that he has. Um, you know, he's just he's blind. That's the only thing. So he doesn't have that extra added gruesomeness to him. Well, he is grotesque, though. And I think I think in the opening the way he's touching that is, is, is so kind of, I guess there's a lot of imagery associated with, I think, with like Japanese pornography, like, and I'm talking contemporary, just this kind of very gropey nature of things. And there's something about the way he's touching that statue that is just so kind of repellent that if, if he was also physically repellent, it might be too much to even get through. Yeah, that moment when he's touching the statue or groping is a much better word. Like you said, groping the statue and she feels it on her own body, that kind of, you know, twinning effect where it's, uh, he's touching the object, but she feels his hands on her. That's such a nice moment. And that's one of the first moments where she's not necessarily 100% in control. Yeah, it taps into this dark desire that people have. Like, and that's where these things can be, uh, feminist. It's like this very interesting line. I think if this was just outwardly completely misogynist, it'd be such a turnoff. But there's this other thing that, like, people's impulses are not 
A to B and, and the, you know, they can be surprising and uh, strange and, he, and he's not afraid to kind of uh, go all in on that. I love that this movie basically has like what, three different settings, maybe three and a half. If you were to take the warehouse and split that in two to say the front part of the warehouse where the kitchen is versus the back part where the art studio is, because we start in the art museum we move to, I'm thinking it's a hotel room where she requests the massage, and that's where he comes back and begins to feel her some more, feeling the real thing this time, and then the warehouse. And that's it. So we've got three locations, three characters. I mean, I think the only other person we see is maybe the receptionist at the art exhibit, and that's it. And so it's such a nice tight little story that then gets to explode into craziness, even though it's still the same three characters once we get to the warehouse. Yeah, I was thinking that um, possibly Masumura was envisioning this as a, almost like a play. And also, you know, I guess in contrast, you know, uh, you'd already made reference to the short story. The short story has, you know, a wide variety of settings. And in fact, the film only really, if you were to um, say how much of it was adapted from the short story really like only maybe five or six pages or so because um it's mainly just a setup for the film essentially yeah he ends up killing that first girl in the in the book that i have it's like on page 53 where he's dismembering her which is the end of the film spoilers i'm glad i said that but um yeah and then it goes on for another 70 some pages and it, it, he ends up killing i think seven girls altogether yeah it's wildly different i mean you're right this is just like the intro slash first chapter of the blind beast story but he manages to take that and hold our interest and make this cat and mouse and all of the the back and forth between aki and uh, michio into like you said it does feel very play-like at times though if you were to put this production on it would probably cost i don't know how many thousands of dollars just in uh props because the production design once they get to this warehouse where the meat of the story takes place this is some of the best stuff i've ever seen on film and this is what makes me remember this movie and i just think about what they had to go through to make all of these eyes, ears, nose, limbs, and these huge bodies that they have laying in this warehouse space. It's just fantastic. One uh, little story that I heard about the props was that, um, you know, Eiji Funokoshi, uh, you know, the actor, at the time he had his own uh, bar, um, I'm assuming in Tokyo, and he was so um, taken by the, the props, as you call them, that he wanted to actually purchase them and put them in his bar as display. But the um, his staff, I guess, basically threatened to um, to all quit if he did that. So I assume that he didn't get his way in that case. We get like 10 minutes maybe of Dolly's work in Spellbound. And I've always found Spellbound to be a one of the duller Hitchcock films because so much of it is talking about psychoanalysis. Uh, but the sequences that do remain are pretty electric. It feels like that for an entire movie. And that's... You can't undercut when we first are introduced to that in the story, the way they do it by making a background to the, uh, the, the Aki character 
initially in the dark so you're only seeing pieces of it until it's revealed the entire space it's a it's a really great way to reveal something that's almost we use the phrase a lot mind-blowing when we watch movies but in this case it, it's truly deserved because you can't even really fathom how it's put together it's it's that impressive by showing the scale that she's surrounded by of these just you know naked forms um as she says at one point it's it's like you are actually a baby that's why everything's so big because you're you're you know you have a baby's perspective which i thought was pretty pretty great uh and i also think in terms of the play thing i think the reason i can get away with it is the characters change rather dramatically every 20 minutes or so in terms of what they want their desires or how they feel so instead of sets changing like a traditional hollywood film it doesn't need to they are going through such big shifts constantly in terms of their relationship to each other uh that it it pulls it off because you're completely invested it's not static at all when we first start to see these props, these statues of things that their lips, noses, uh, eyes, and ears. So we're going through pretty much all of the five senses. And then we start to see the breasts, the arms, the legs, and the huge body. And that so much of their interactions take place basically right at the crotch of this huge woman's body. But I think when Aki first realizes where she is, she's right up by the, these huge breasts. And she's like, it's her and a nipple right by her. And it's like the framing of it is just gorgeous. It's like, wow, this is just, uh, it really captures the imagination and they never really show you if memory serves, they never show you the entire warehouse space and they keep the lighting pretty dim because this is the art studio of a blind man. So it's really nice to kind of like pinpoint different things to say, like, look at this, look at this. And then as the story goes on, the lighting gets dimmer and dimmer, especially right in the third act. Saying I didn't notice till this viewing was if you watch it, I th- and I think I'm right on this, is you don't actually see a, a vagina. And I think it's actually uh, kind of a neutered female form, kind of like a mannequin. And I think, again, part of that in this story, which is the opposite of what Almodovar does and talk to her, where he recreates an image very similar to this, but with a giant, you know, vagina that a person enters. In this case, I think it's, this is what he's talking about with the innocence. I think he's saying, I think he's saying that this character doesn't even know what a vagina is, doesn't, hasn't even really touched the human form. So all he knows is the outward parts that he's touched on a clay figure or, you know, in, in, in a museum. And I think that's, I didn't pick up on that the first two times I saw this. So it wasn't until seeing him as an innocent going, oh, they didn't even include this very key detail <laughs> to, to woman's anatomy. But also the thing that scares men, right? Or, or potentially, especially someone young, this kind of, this kind of fear of the part that's unknown, unknowable because it's internal. And, and so that really, like it was just for a second that you see somebody run down between legs, but there's nothing there. And it kind of struck me as, oh, that's interesting. In the one scene where he is fondling the statue in the museum or art gallery, when he does get to the, the point of the, the crotch, you know, he sort of like skates over it. He doesn't really fondle it quite as much as he does, you know, the rest of the the body of the statue. And I kind of noticed that, and I thought, oh, that's kind of an interesting touch. But now that you're adding this into it, this element into it, yeah, that that certainly does make sense now. Yeah, that whole idea of uh, it could just be really clever censorship, self-censorship. But you're right, he has never known that, except for maybe the day that he was born, but that was it. 
No, the innocent thing really came through on this viewing. It's funny. It's not the part that came through on other viewings for me, to be honest. I always, I, when I remember, think back to the movie, I'm always like, oh, he's so extreme and disturbing and he's this, you know, rapist. And then watching it this time, you go, well, it builds to a rape and the, and, and the kind of rape and what it is. It's a very, it's kind of a weird, complicated moment. But up until then, he really had, except for the opening where you would view him that way because of how he's behaving. Once you get him to the house, you realize he really wants permission. He's at, he's begging for permission to do these things and it's uh it makes it uh very desperate and he's kind of a sad figure i was really reminded a lot of uh the collector the film and the book that uh, it was based on this whole idea of kidnapping a woman and wearing her down and um i mean i'm curious how long that story has been around because it just i mean you know just last was it last year there was the uh stockholm syndrome movie and this has been in movies and probably in books for a long damn time and it's just uh this is yet another entry in that story of i'm going to kidnap this woman and wear her down i mean hell i'm talking about beauty and the beast in a couple weeks here and that's it again so it's been around for a long damn time the one that reminds me of most, weirdly enough, is the, another one that's deeply complicated and hard to talk about, which is The Piano Teacher by Haneke, because it's like this wish fulfillment element, too, which makes it very hard to talk about in clean, you know, PC ways. Like, oh, you know, she's just been raped. And, you know, the Haneke's film, it's a, a rape fantasy that then somebody fulfills, and then it's against her wishes. And so it becomes, you know, very complicated character studies. I feel the same about Aki in this. She seems to have these interesting desires that keep shifting as we go and even though there's no question that he's ra- it's rape when he rapes her it becomes very you know very surprising where it takes you i guess the first time i saw the film you know which film i kind of really thought of was a uh, hellraiser <laughs> of course you know i mean there's some obvious elements you know the sadomasochism and you know kind of unlocking this the pain and pleasure uh I- idea but I also kind of thought of it as being like um the artist being sort of like a, a pinhead kind of figure where he's, there's something that's deep within him that needs to be unlocked or that he has to unlock. And, and, and that was just one of those impressions I first got because, um, I think that, uh, w- when I was thinking of what we're going to talk about later is the theme of the, uh, Eroguro nonsense is that, uh, how, there's not a direct Western influence, but I think there is a, a somewhat indirect influence, and I kind of feel that. Uh, and, and when I was thinking about different like uh, parts, uh, different kinds of media that I feel were sort of in the Arrow Girl realm, you know, definitely Hellraiser is one of those things, you know, and and a lot of um, and a lot of his stories, in fact, kind of uh, fall into that sort of realm. Again, there's not a direct influence, but there's something there that. You know, maybe it's part of just being human, you know, that, again, the fascination with, you know, violence and sex, you know, the, and the, and the mixing of, of those two, you know. So <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of, I know it's a little bit uh, off base or a little bit on the left field side, but, uh, and I, I don't think anyone necessarily who likes Hellraiser will also like Blind Beast, but I think those, you know, those elements are there, though. I check both those boxes. Mm-hmm. I, I think we all, all three of us do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think the reason why I read The Collector and watched the movie of it was actually when we were talking about Boxing Helena on this podcast a few years ago and thinking about uh, Aki's fate. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but thinking about her wanting to have her arms and legs cut off, it's 
like Helena asking for it rather than having that be the way that Julian Sands is going to keep her. It would be fascinating to know if she had seen this, Jennifer Lynch had seen this film. It, she was pretty young. I know when she came up with it, I think she was 17, 18, and obviously the film wouldn't have been very available. But there has, there's obviously imagery like this throughout the history of art. And I think part of it's just becoming a literal object. Like we talk about objectification. Once you have no arms and no legs, that there's not, you know, you're unmovable. You can't, you can't fend for yourself. You're, you're literally almost an object at that point. And I think uh, that might be some of that influence. I also like that that element of the story is a reference to one of uh, Edogawa Rampo's other stories, which is uh, uh, the Japanese title is uh, Imomushi, but uh, the English translation is uh, Caterpillar, which actually was also made into a film. But the the idea of you know a person without their limbs and you know and the sensations that they have that are very different from folks, you know, of course, who do have limbs. Doesn't he even say at one point that he's a caterpillar? I think so. Yeah, or he says like uh, like I'm I'm an insect or something like that. Yeah. Oh, the collector has lots of butterfly imagery. The one thing that none of these stories have that I'm thinking of is is someone who's complicit in all of this, in which the addition of the mother character adds that whole thing to it. You know, it's almost like a, like a Renfield or something, but the mother is much more in control. And I love that it becomes, you know, you talked about how Manji is this love triangle. This film is very similar in that there is this love triangle going on between the mother loving the son, the son loving the mother, but he also loves Aki and she doesn't necessarily love him at the point where they are fighting, but she is using that love against both him and the mother and trying to drive this wedge between them. And I love all of this kind of cat and mouse thing that she's doing by making the mother jealous, by making the son break away from the mother and that she becomes this major thing of like the mother saying like, come with me, we're going to sneak you out here. And if you tell the police, I'll kill you, but you need to leave now because she's losing control of the son, which I don't see necessarily in that boxing Helena collector, uh, beauty and the beast type of mold. Yeah. Her motivation's really strange. Like, because it's not sexual, because we know she is kind of shocked when he actually is starting to, you know, kiss and make love to Aki. She disapproves and tells them to get back to work. So clearly it's artistic. Clearly she actually has some desire to move forward her son's ambitions as an artist, which is, you know, kind of interesting. Uh, whereas Aki, I think, I think one of the reasons she ends up being drawn to him is just to outdo the mother. She wants to be sole object of desire. And whether it's in photography to the world, like the start of the movie or by the end, I think that's how she defines herself as being a conduit in a sense. And that's how she finds fulfillment. It's, it's a really strange triangle, but yeah, definitely you scratch your head a bit at the mother's motivations. Cause you know, at the start you think it's just to get a woman, right? Let's get my son laid, but it's nothing to do with that. It's there's something else. Yeah. Yeah, if anything, she's, yeah, like you said, jealous of that. And then Aki, I love how she immediately turns on the Freudian analysis and it's just like, oh, you want to fuck your mother and just sets everything off. It's like, you know, oh, you're doing this because you're a baby. You don't know anything about women. You want to fuck your mother and just like really goes for that Freudian type of, you know, jugular right away. It's the bird's mom. That's who it reminds me of most, the, the mother from the birds. Oh, God, which, yeah. Which kind of triggers the whole thing, you know, as soon as in the birds, as soon as uh, the mother, the, as soon as Tippy shows up, all hell unleashes from the birds. So it's like the mother rage. It feels very similar type of figure in here. 
John, I was curious, what is the thing that the mother is wearing? Because it looked, I thought it was an apron at first, and then it looked like maybe it was some sort of like a surgical garment. I couldn't figure out why she was wearing or what she was wearing through so much of this. Well, you're right in saying it's an apron. It's basically, I guess, what we would call in the West a smock. In Japanese, it's called a kapogi. It's basically a large apron. And the reason why it is so large is because um, uh, the kapogi was first invented uh, back in the, the turn of the century, uh, in other words, the 20th century at least. Uh, and it was invented by a uh, cooking school. What they did was instead of you know having like the Western size apron would of course expose your arms, but Japanese women at the time, uh, you know, they wore kimono, and kimono have very long uh, sleeves that kind of like. Um, droop and billow out so you would have to have a, a naturally a, a longer sort of smock to be able to cover your sleeves so you don't get them dirty while you're cooking in fact um you know the kapogi is is both associated with the mother which is a really clever instrument for viewers to know that okay this is a mother this is not like a maid or a, a servant or someone else that he has you know uh, in captive in captivity but it's also associated with uh, wait staff, so waitresses, etc., um, who would, of course, have to handle food. Did it look like a surgeon's smock to anybody other than me? The first time I saw, I've seen saw Kapogi when I was, you know, whatever high school or whatever age it was. I started watching Japanese TV. I thought the same thing. I was like, "What's she doing?" <laughs> you know, I couldn't even see the mom because I kept looking at Aki. <laughs> I'm kind of blinded. <laughs> Who's the blind beast now? I know, I know. I think the same too. That I I wanted to ask you guys that thing about touch, the new art form being touch, which I assume is that is that element part of the story? Yes, it is. Um, In fact, it's sort of the what I kind of feel is the odd conclusion of the story is wrapped in this sort of this new art or this new way of you know perceiving art. It's kind of, I say it's kind of odd because it sort of feels like, in a way, it's dropped in. For the most part, the short story is kind of like, I didn't think about it when I first read the story, but uh, I read it again uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It's actually kind of like a slasher film, to be honest. It's basically this guy who's looking for women, and then he dismembers them and then disposes of the body parts in very weird slash interesting slash darkly comic manners. Sort of the ending, in a way, kind of feels a little tacked on. It's just like, sort of like, oh, so, yeah, he got away with it. And, you know, and it goes into this sort of like a little bit of a treatise on, you know, uh, on art and touch and things like that. And it serves, I think, the film better than it does the story, that element of it. Because, like I said, the story feels very much just like a straight up horror story. I was wondering only because it felt like it might have been added by Masamura because that felt like his commentary about, you know, Japanese film at the time. Like, I'm going to return and do something different and create something that's more tactile and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a different kind of cinema, but it could be a losing battle from the get go. Like, your ambition might be more than you can actually deliver. It's it's kind of how it read, but interesting to hear it was always there. Yeah, if I had to guess, I would guess that, uh, you know, Masumura saw that element of the story and just wanted to amplify that because that's kind of how he felt about, you know, his position in the film world, possibly. 
Rampo goes through and the first woman, so basically the Aki type character, very much the Aki character because there is a statue of her. And so it's very one to one when it comes to that, but she is not in control whatsoever. And they do fall in love and there is this whole thing, but then the blind beast ends up just getting kind of tired of her and that's when he decides that he's going to kill her and move on to the next person and then yeah to what john was saying it's this whole you know oh they found a leg here and they found an arm there and yes some of the scenes are actually very funny the way that he discards these uh body parts but then they do make a point of saying like he discarded the arms and the legs, but nobody ever found the torso or the head. And then the next victim, yeah, they found the two arms, but they never found anything else. And it just goes on and on and on like that. And then, yeah, at the very end, he leaves this statue for somebody to find. And then the last, like, probably two or three pages of it is like an art critique. It feels like it was written for a newspaper and it's talking about this work of art that has these three torsos and seven legs and eight heads or whatever just goes through and has this whole thing. And it becomes, yeah, this new work of art, which is just all of these women's body parts kind of strung together. And yeah, to your point, John, it just was like, okay, this doesn't seem to fit at all. And there is no comeuppance for the blind beast at all. He just goes about his merry way. And I'm wondering whatever became of him. This sounds like a Sergio Martino uh, Giallo film, which sounds pretty good, like I'd watch it. But I think what he did by making this a relationship movie uh, and about desires and how tricky they are and how uh, how only through this, like, almost completely submitting yourself uh, do we get to figure out who they maybe really were meant to be is, is a much sounds like a much more interesting angle for a movie because the other stuff sounds like stuff we've seen and somehow before. It's like Bucket of Blood if um, our main character were really evil. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not Dick Miller. <laughs> no, no. If it wasn't Dick Miller, if it was Jack Nicholson instead of Dick Miller. Yeah, I couldn't see Blind Beast with Dick Miller. I think that would be odd. <laughs> <laughs> Walter Paisley at the art museum feeling up the statue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Feeling really bad about groping. He's just right. feeling really guilty. <laughs> but I could see him and his mother having those conversations. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Like I said, I just love this whole back and forth that they go through. She wants to have a date with him at one point and throws it up in his face. Like, are you going to eat with me? Or are you going to eat with your mommy? And we're going to have alcohol. And I like that he immediately is like, oh, you're going to try to get me drunk and escape. That's not going to work. I was like, all right, good. At least you're not stupid. I was really afraid he was going to be dumb. But he manages to figure out a lot of times that she is fooling with him. But then... After that rape, that all-important rape, you know, because women will love you after that, as we've seen time and again in movies. And I'm thinking, of course, of uh, what was the the, the one with um, Madonna a few years ago that was a remake where she was on the island. Oh, swept away. Swept away, yeah. G- a guy Richie Opus. Nothing but class. As soon as that happens, then she begins to fall in love with him. And then she loses her sight, and the two of them become these two creatures living in the dark with the mother's dead body moldering in the front room. Man, this movie gets really stark really fast. 
but thankfully i don't know what it how this one gets away with it in a way that the others don't like i you know that that cliche is just you know it's pretty abhorrent when you think about movies uh but in this case it feels uh completely organic and it feels like uh it was in it was somehow maybe there's more of a fatalist approach to these two characters and how they're kind of entwining uh i will say that where it makes that leap right after it feels to me like maybe there is 20 minutes of trimming done in a good way like it works i love how quickly it leaps to her uh caring about him but it does feel like i could imagine there was more there filmed that was at some point excised out um to move it along because that's the one big quick uh kind of leap forward you get well you know one story i'd heard about the film was that uh the screenwriter um at the time uh he apparently was um hooked on, I don't know if it was barbiturates or medication of some sort. And, um, you know, a lot of the strangeness of the film, a lot of the strange, even the dialogue, like in in Japanese, it's a little bit more vague, I would say, because, you know, I I watch with subtitles, but, you know, I, I can understand the Japanese enough. And it very much feels like the person who wrote it was maybe in, in a bit of a fog while I was writing it. And, and apparently the story is that the original draft was so incoherent that they had to ghostwrite out a lot of stuff. So it might have been the case that what's on the cutting room floor is those elements that just didn't make sense because they were written by an addled mind, possibly. I love how she starts to go blind and then he, Michio talks about how, you know, just because I'm blind doesn't mean that my other senses are more sharp, uh, other than possibly touch. But I'd like that after she goes blind, then she suddenly starts to crave pain and it becomes this bizarre relationship of them hurting each other, him tying her up and whipping her, and just this whole thing of them having so many scars and wounds on their body that the really the next logical conclusion is, go ahead and cut off my arm. I really want to feel this pain from you cutting off my arm. Yeah, it's pretty dark. <laughs> it gets dark fast. I, I, the one part we forgot to mention, which I think is relevant to to that rape, was the part that it comes right after accidentally killing the mother, and and that line where he he does say, "I've killed my mother. I can do anything now." It seems to be like the whole basis of that character, like this freeing of these Oedipal reigns uh, happens right in this moment, and that she's been complicit. Uh, Aki has been very complicit in that in that happening, and and she's more or less orchestrated uh, to push the mother aside. So it's 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 a real Really interesting build uh, that moment, but yeah, once it goes into the real kind of sado erotic stuff, that's where you're, you know, so specific that that's where I can relate less to it, but I'm still find it utterly fascinating and sad. It it seems to be where they're they are kind of uh, paring each other down like pieces of art, and it's yeah, it's it's pretty disturbing, and it happens so fast. And I appreciate that almost I would say magical realism as far as when he is removing her limbs that they are also falling off of the statue and it's a nice like kind of uh stand-in for the gore because we don't get to see the gore because like i said the lighting is such that we're really starting to minimize the lighting so we don't see those wounds but we do see it on the statue and it's just super clever that he did it that way 
And it's a bookend because at the start, I think what it's linking is at the start of the film, she feels his hands on the statue. She actually feels it. And now when he hacks her body, it's a statue that gets severed. And I think it, it is comparing them to, you know, literal pieces of art that they're becoming these things. And I think that I didn't, again, another detail I didn't notice the first couple of times I watched this film, but watching it this time when you're, when you're trying to kind of uh, find these patterns, I think the beginning and end are like perfect mirrors. And I am curious because he commits suicide and she is still speaking to us. And I'm wondering if it's one of those Joe Gillis type of things where she's speaking to us from the beyond or if this is just the last few moments of life before it ebbs away. Because we do end, I believe, on her eyes uh, in the darkness and then we fade to black completely. But she was still narrating right up till that last point. I mean, your natural inclination is, is is to think, you know, well, she's narrating, so she must have survived, you know. But uh, you know, obviously, that's not the case. Well, I, th- I think it's. A, I really, even the look in her eyes, I feel like you see after he dies and he falls on top of her. It's. I still see a little light in her eyes. It doesn't doesn't say that she's alive or not, but I felt like it was the final thought, and the final thought was deeply philosophical. It's actually, re- honestly, it's a really beautiful, though very somber. Uh, I, I kind of wish I'd written it down, but she talks about things like jellyfish and other creatures that go to the very darkest of unexplored edges that only those things will ever understand and it's like i and i've seen those but i will still die in a dark nothing loneliness you know it doesn't matter that i so experience those things i i feel like it's it almost feels like the uh summation of the entire movie perfectly in this kind of hard to pin down philosophical couple lines and it which is nice it's not literal it's very you know it's i don't know i thought it was quite beautiful this time listening to it but not fully understanding what what it is she means but i do feel like it was her final her final thoughts that that's how it felt and again we get again the reason why i think the movie works so well is we get her final thoughts we get her initial thoughts we get to see her perspective on art we never get any of that on him we just get him grasping touching uh and talking about what he wants to do artistically but we never really see inside him and i think that's why it's i think that's one of the reasons it works as a construction to not feel like it's just this grotesque rapey piece of filmmaking yeah i think it's it's showing her inner life and her inner life is really complicated and that to me is the best kind of person to portray one thing i didn't bring up was the idea of money as well because that is one of the things that also has driven a wedge between the mother and son is that they have spent he says that i spent all my inheritance building this studio and the mother takes him to task for that because yeah all of the money that this family has has gone into this and then she just has that one little space at the front of the warehouse where it looks like she lives and cooks and does everything and the rest of it is all dedicated to her son i'm always curious where the father is in this and it's he's suspiciously absent which i am glad for you know that absence creates the question as far as what happened here and that he blames his mother for being blind and that he is still angry at his parents for having him as a blind baby I do know his dad died early. I think pretty early after he was born. I think they there's conflicting because at the start they mention he died, but it sounds recent, like he just re- recently got all this money. But then towards the end, I think they say my father died 
soon after my birth and then he inherits all this money and then and then i don't know what what age he waited till maybe it's three or four before he blew it on this crazy warehouse with uh porn <laughs> his porn den um i'm not sure what what age very strange richie rich model but uh it it no but it's it is interesting i mean they also share a bed they're the one scene you see him sleeping next to it so you're right they there's very little room for their life because he doesn't need much it's it's all about just giving him everything he wants which is classic edible relationship that she just surrenders everything for him the father thing is again maybe it's a reference to psycho maybe the idea being maybe the mother off the father to get the money for them to live you know uh, alone again nothing's really implied but you never know and i don't want to speak out of turn but other than the very beginning and end of this film i don't remember music being used very often yeah, no, neither. No, to be honest, it, it, it scores something you start to forget about. You notice it in a couple of the more dramatic moments, but yeah, it's not during the bulk of them being together. I guess like a play, he's probably letting the drama take the four. Yeah, and even if there is music, I mean, the intensity of the scenes, I think it's enough where, yeah, it would, you could easily just drown it out. And in fact, probably the music would probably actually hurt the moment rather than help it. I mean, depending on, you know, what kind of compositions you used, but, um, you know, something minimal might be useful, but something like a big score, you know, big orchestral score or something like that would definitely not fit, (laughs) especially the, you know, the small contained, you know, intense three person setup of the film. I'm waiting for somebody to come along and adapt this and make a a, uh, stage play out of it. I think it would really work. Yeah, you know, I was looking up, because uh, I was really curious if someone had done that before, at least in Japan, and I, I couldn't find any information, but like you're saying, you know, I really hope that someone does someday, because I, and Masamura is, and, you know, of course, Edogawa Rampo in general are both very influential in the Japanese art scene, so, you know, I, I just can't imagine someone not at least not trying, you know, even if it's like a, you know, a college project of some sort you know no perhaps all the original sets exist in the epstein compound (laughs) (laughs) all will be revealed (laughs) all right guys we're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages have a hunger for horror a yen for yelp yarns then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to chronicles from the crypt join sordid slime slingers casualty chris and father malone as they take on hbo's groundbreaking television series tales from the crypt here's what a rotting and rancid rabble are saying about chronicles from the crypt <laughs> tune in to chronicles from the crypt you have nothing to lose except your life Hello, I'm Mugumbo, and I am a potaholic. I have been known to consume four or five of these underground commentaries a day, salivating for the next episodes. I have tweeted the creators of these shows and offered sexual favors for validation and conversation. I put these hosts high on a pedestal, but for some reason, I can never climax until I listen to the traumatic cinematic show. What is the difference, you ask? The Traumatic Cinematic Show has my own self-defecating voice on it. Nothing gets me off faster than thinking about myself. So when you are sitting around nude, pleasuring yourself to the voices of strangers, check out TraumaticCinematic.com, because we'll give you a reach around. You can also find us on TraumaticCinematic.Podomatic.com. 
I'm on the internet. I have been a surfer since even before I can remember. When I hit the water, it felt like a giant had grabbed me and slammed me to the bottom. Never knew there was such a fear. Fear, fear, fear. Surfer, Teen Confronts Fear is a movie of faith, fear, and redemption that has mesmerized audiences around the globe. Now playing at the Film Bar Theater in Phoenix, Arizona. Tickets on sale now at thefilmbarphx.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. about blind beast and uh elric i was so happy to see your tweet yesterday that that you discovered eroguro and now are a huge fan what i love about the more you know more you dig around into movies if you do this long enough like we all have been doing is you know what you love like the things that really get you but you don't always have a word that connects them we often use cult movies or movies that go to darker weirder things and as soon as i read, <laughs> read the description of this which was the first time eroticism grotesquery and nonsensical i was like oh wow that speaks to 90 percent of my interests <laughs> in, <laughs> in movies and so I, I i whilst i would say i'm still a rookie in understanding uh its place in japanese culture and art i, I really was taken with that and it, and it especially made sense to all the notes that this film is hitting so i would love uh you know if, if you guys know more about its place in art prior to this movie i'd, I'd be fascinated to know i know i'm gonna f- fudge some of this so if, if there are any like hardcore japan history experts out there you're probably gonna get pissed off at me but um the thing that really drives Girl, i guess as a definition we can say Girl was a sort of art slash media movement happened in japan in the uh approximately mid-20s to uh, mid-30s, although it very much has its influence in, you know, Japanese art, Japanese film, you know, even today. Um, you know, if, if, even if you look at something like um, modern, you know, Asia extreme stuff, you know, Tokyo Gore Police, yeah, Miike stuff, you know, you can very much see the direct influence. Like I said, I think that there's also a lot of indirect influence in a lot of not just Japanese art, but also, you know, um, because of, you know, the proliferation, excuse me, of Japanese media through things like anime and manga, you know, if you look up Eroguro, if you just Google it, excuse me, um, you know, I found a whole bunch of things that were related, of course, to anime, you know, of course, the famous uh, trope from anime that, you know, directly points to Eroguro is the, you know, tentacle rape stuff, um, as well as, you know, there's a whole bunch of subgenres of, you know, in air quotes, um, deviant anime and uh, manga that very much um, is influenced, um, you know, things like uh, Junji Ito, uh, his works, things like the works of Hideshi Hino, um, those folks 
who do, do this very upfront horror stuff, but it's not just horror like in the Western sense where it's just, you know, gore and, you know, you get your comeuppance and, you know, those kinds of tropes that we're used to. But there's this element of the sexuality, this element of just plain, like, abstract. What's really interesting is some of the things you're saying is it's the complete inverse of what especially Western culture, especially in the say the 80s, would view of Japanese culture. So eroticism we think of them as almost neutered in this culture, especially if you watch Wall Street or something or, or Black Rain, you know uh, grotesque where they seem clean shaven and perfect uh, you know, I'm talking about like can the businessman model, uh, nonsensical where logic and order are the, are, are the kind of stereotype of the day. So if you take it's almost like this seething internal uh, pool of desires that are unknowable on the surface, but all, all, all exterior cultures are just looking at the surface of what has been built out of a post-war. And, and, and it seems to be that is what, in the quotes I saw about Masamura, it seemed to be where he's attacking. I think he, for what he was saying is, I don't believe in this kind of cinema of conformity. I want to come and, you know, uh, put a bomb under that and, 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 and show our, inner desires, even if that makes us look crazy, you know, even if it's madness. And that's clearly what he achieves with this. So I do find it, I find it very interesting that how, how, you know, on the opposite side of the spectrum, the inner art that we're seeing is from the exterior that was kind of being shown, exported around the world in a sense. Yeah, I was reading a critique on, uh, you know, Arrow Girl. And uh, one thing that was kind of interesting that um, the uh, writer said, and I can't remember who it was exactly, was that... Um, is that Eroguro is very much a reaction to the Japanese society of the time in which that, you know, we look at Japan, even now we look at Japan as this wonderful, you know, peaceful place, you know, and, and, you know, it's very austere and, you know, we think of, you know, Japanese traditions, cultures, but like I said, Eroguro was very much driven by modernity, which was, you know, the modernity as we know it, you know, um, started in Japan around the 1860s uh, when, um, you know, Commodore Matthew Perry uh, went to Japan, basically demanded that, you know, hey, you need to open up this country. And of course, you know, the Emperor Meiji at the time, you know, he had he had already had that plan to open up the country to other influences. And as a result of this, you know, we had this idea of in Japan of, you know, modernity. You know, Aerogrow was sort of a reflection of that because it was so, it was sort of this release of this feeling of freedom that we no longer have to just be work with what we know as tradition in Japan, but also this sort of these look at these outside influences. So, you know, even, you know, back then, even today, you know, where we see Japanese people wearing a lot of Western clothing, we would assume that, okay, well, they are very much in tune to, you know, um, you know, European or American um, ways of thinking and influences. Whereas, you know, there's actually this, I guess you could say in Japan, this kind of push and pull that's always going on with, with uh, culture. The tradition versus the modern, you know, the, the so-called Eastern versus the Western. And those kinds of elements, I think, play very much into Aerogirl, where with this newfound outside influences, you know, we can suddenly, you know, express ourselves in very different and interesting ways. Um, and I think that really opened up artists at the time, authors, traditional uh, visual artists, etc., to doing these kinds of, you know, very out there, as we call them now, Irogoro types of uh, work. Edogal Rampo is only one of the people involved with this movement, so to speak. And he was the one that actually, you could say, started it with some of his earlier uh, stories 
Rampo is very much the, one of the most famous authors um, in Japan. You know, if you ask Japanese people, you know, which uh, writers, you know, had the most influence on you, uh, you know, Rampo has got to be one of those right up there. You know, he, at the time, he, you know, he was doing these kind of horror stories, but he was also doing detective stories, which, you know, are very much part of the uh, entertainment uh, code in Japan in that they keep getting remade and keep getting, uh, you know, with different actors, different directors, different folks putting their hands into uh, a lot of his work because it's so, you know, a part of their literature and, you know, now their art world that, you know, just people want to enjoy it again and again. I guess, you know, a parallel would be like, let's say, with someone in in the Western world that we could say is kind of like that. Um, maybe Hemingway, or, you know, or Edgar Allan Poe, or, you know, Shakespeare, or someone like that. You know, someone who's very much, very much the main, one of the main ingredients of their uh, literature and art world there. And yet, he's and yet he's Western. He's got a, a major Western influence, which is interesting. So he's changing. He's changing with Japanese society. I mean, a favorite movie of mine that I just recommend anytime I can is The Mystery of Rampo. And I know it's a fiction film. So, and I know it was actually very popular in Japan, but in in America, it had like you know the release coincided with the end of MGM, so it just kind of got buried. But it's really a, it's the most Lynchian movie I've seen, where people always use Lynchian. I think it's the closest that's come to creating that feeling, uh, and it's a really interesting film shows how how popular his work was uh, how censorship was uh, impinging his work and how these movies were being adapted from his work that he didn't really you know understand or care for and it's just it just looks at all that and then spins into a fictitious film but i think if you enjoy blind beast and get to that it would be worth going to that movie rampo's stuff had been adapted almost uh from the mid-century i know he wrote in the early part of the century but as far as um you know he actually went to movies and cinema influenced his work and then he influenced cinema and then as uh time went on there were more and more adaptations of his work but this period of time 1968 1969 there were three major adaptations of his stuff there was black lizard by kinji fukasaku there was a movie we talked about last week horrors of malformed men by Teru ishii and there was this one and it just all three of these movies coming out almost at the exact same time, just really saying like, hey, look at there's still a lot of life left in Rampo. And I'm very curious why then, why the late 60s, was it a reaction against something that had happened before? Was this embrace of Eroguro nonsensu uh, something to say like, we are not conforming with the status quo. We are embracing the work that has come before. And, and, uh, you know, that, uh, Mishima was involved not only with Masamura, with things like Afraid to Die, but he had written the stage adaptation of Black Lizard and shows up in Black Lizard. Um, you know, it just feels like things were kind of coming together again at the end of the 60s that had happened, you know, back in the Taisho era, um, with Rampo, uh, beginning his work. You know, I think it's always kind of interesting to look at film from the perspective of the culture that it's coming from. And, you know, although, you know, in the West, you know, especially with us film fanatics, you know, we look at these films and say like, oh, these are, you know, kind of the works from major directors, you know, from our perception again, um, and they're doing and they're um, adapting from, you know, of course, a major Japanese author. You know, in reality, you know, at least on the Japanese side of things, I think what 
Japanese really associate with uh, with Rampo is actually a lot of the TV adaptations that uh, that came about in actually the early seventies, um, especially of his uh, mystery works, um, the works that he did with, um, I guess, the Japanese version of Sherlock Holmes, which uh, who's named uh, Kogoro Akechi, and um, there was a very popular TV series uh, during that time um, called the Bijou series. Bijo means a beautiful woman. The episodes of these series were all basically um, mystery vignettes. I don't know if you could say like it's something like uh, Murder, She Wrote. Maybe a little more, I think a little more racier version than uh, Murder, She Wrote. Because uh, back then in Japan, um, you could show nudity. So one of the things, if you, um, there are actually several episodes of the Bijo series or the Beautiful Woman series on YouTube. If you watch them, you know, one of the elements of the story is that there's always going to be at least one or two nude scenes. And, you know, one of the, I guess, my wife is Japanese and we've watched the series on YouTube before. And, you know, one of the sort of games that we play when watching the series is which of the actresses is going to be the one who gets nude. (laughs) (laughs) And every time you bet against Angela Lansbury. So I guess the thing is that, you know, a lot of these films, I I think a lot of these films are not so much a reaction to anything, but I think they're just a continuation of, you know, of uh, Edogawa Rampo's influence within, you know, the film and the art and literature worlds or the media worlds in general. Is there a lot of censorship in, I mean, obviously in Rampo's time, we, he talks about, but in movies, this thing, I don't know, in Japanese cinema uh, of, say, the 50s, was there a lot of censorship involved? Because it does feel like an explosion in the 60s to kind of um, rebel against that, just like most cinemas have. Yes, yes, very much was. And I, I think it was not so much like, you know, the broad enforced censorship. I think it got to the point where... Um, you know, a lot of Japanese media companies are very sensitive to, you know, the morals of the time. You know, morals are very much a part of, uh, you know, Japanese, you know, if you're in a groupthink society, you know, again, and I'm using groupthink in a very broad uh, manner, you know, morals are very much a part of how you think of things. Um, you know, like here, at least in the United States, where we're, three of us are from, you know, we kind of think, you know, well, I do what I want, you know, that kind of thing, you know. And even though I have to follow the law, you know, to a certain degree, I can still do what I want within, you know, my little capsule or my bubble, you know. Or, you know, whereas Japanese or, or group thinking societies might, they're, the thinking or the individual thinking is part of the greater moral thinking. So I think a lot of these companies, instead of being enforced to censor themselves or censor, they in in fact actually went into self-censorship. So that's why in a lot of films you see kind of that clever cutaway or that clever, you know, covering certain parts of the body where you could still get a little bit of that, you know, the nude form, so to speak, but you're not going to get the, you know, the, the payoff, so to speak. Which this film even has a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, I was just about to bring that out. Yeah, the statue covers some parts of uh, Aki's body, you know, very cleverly in certain scenes, right? And his hands do. His hands, uh, I don't think they really very much expose nipples, and it seems to be purposeful at a point, because he's groping her constantly. But there's other parts where she's talking, it's like, oh, there's some reason they're not, you know, that he's still touching her in this way, and it's kind of strange. So, yeah, when censorship was... Or you know, even self censorship was loosened up, you know, 
partly due to TV, partly due to, you know, other elements, uh, media elements. In that case, yeah, I think you could see that as being a reaction. It's kind of like, okay, now we can kind of tell the the Rompo story that we want to tell rather than, you know, let's cover this, let's cover this, you know, this blood is too red, you know, let's, you know, let's decrease the amount of blood, you know, let's not put the big splatter, let's just put a, you know, whatever, hand stain, you know, that kind of thing. In that sense, yeah, I I think then you can see that as being a reaction to um, to the changing times in the way that uh, people think of uh, censorship, sure. Is that why all the porn I see has big old blurs over the pubic hair? <laughs> I don't know. I've never watched porn before, Mike. I'm not sure. Oh, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's ex- that's exactly why. Well, it's part of it. That That's more enforced, I would say. Okay. Because, you know, the porn industry is sort of a its own separate thing, you know. It's far more disturbing seeing some blur molesting someone <laughs> than an actual weird. body part. <laughs> You're like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, the other film, it, it's, I mean, it's a few years later, but, and it, it is interesting when you read up about Masamura and Oshima's, you know, splitting of their relationship at one point. It's interesting that how similar in, in the realm of the senses really is to the last act of this movie. They're, they're almost the same story at that point, you know, minus the production design. And, and that film ended up being like a like an art house darling it went the opposite way of what blind beast has probably seen more as an exploitation film and in the realm of sense it probably you know might have even won con or something um but it has a very similar ending they're you're devouring each other sexually you know by the end and so it, it is interesting so maybe Masamura left more of an influence on oshima than oshima thought yeah and again i think you could see that you know being Masamura a little bit too ahead of his time you know like rampo Every time I read about Watcher in the Attic, I always think of uh, the Gary Busey film Hider in the House. Oh, yeah, that's a bad one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a rough one. <laughs> what a different movie that would be if Ram Poet written that. <laughs> well, the one thing about Matt Smurda, and I know we've talked about it a bit, but just his, um, you know, he has a college roommate that ends up being Mishima. You know, he, he, get, he gets to study under these great Italian directors in Italy. He comes back and works under uh, Konichi Kawa and Mizuguchi, who are both people who push edges. Like, uh, is it The Insect Woman, I believe, by Ichikawa? There's a couple of movies that reminded me of this. And then Mizuguchi's always been making films that I think were ahead of their time in terms of feminism in terms of looking at the struggle of, of a prostitute or a woman and a male dominant. So you see, so you see these incredible influences on him. It's not, it's not, and then Rampo, obviously in this one, it's not surprising that he had such a unique voice in that way, because it seems like he was seeking out things that were n- not just traditional Japanese influences. And he, and I, I don't know, I, I find his biography to just the little parts that, that we're reading up on pretty fascinating. Seems pretty rare. The experiences he was able to get. Yeah, there's a lot of debate as far as you, know, you were talking about uh, Oshima, and it's like, was he part of the new wave? Was he doing his own thing? Was he just because he worked for a studio? Was he following what the man had to say? It seems like he was doing his own thing. That's where the allusions I've seen to some directors where they mentioned Fuller and people like that. But the one that really kind of stuck in my mind afterwards was Nick Ray, because it was like, here's a guy who's like a fierce independent artist but making films in a studio system and finding his way to get it made, even if it ends up, you know, destroying him in a sense. Uh, but that was the director that made sense in terms of American model to me. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. (laughs) 
enter the private domain of the developed connoisseur. Exposing the obsessive bondage that very special men and women enjoy over each other with the internationally famous Philippe Leroy as Sayer, a sadist, expert in bizarre punishments, a complete master of the most exquisite techniques of mental and physical torture. Dagmar Lysander as Maria, his prisoner. Philippe Leroy and Dagmar Lysander. Quite unlike anything you have ever experienced before, the peculiar bondage in which both master and slave are inescapably trapped. You will never entirely forget this revealing motion picture experience. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at the Laughing Woman, yet another giant woman statue in there. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, John and Elric. So, John, what is keeping you busy, sir? As I have once advertised on your podcast, I do have a website. It's uh, thecinemashow.com. Um, although I'm called the uh, editor-in-chief, that's kind of more in uh, spirit than anything else. I'm, I basically just pay the bills now. I don't do much writing on the site. But my uh, co-editor-in-chief, uh, uh, Dr. John Barra, um, he's a uh, professor in uh, China of, of film, and he basically t- has taken the reins, and uh, he's gathered a great uh, group of um, both academics and non-academic uh, writers who write about Asian film. I read pretty much everything that gets posted on there, and it's all really great, interesting stuff, and I know I'm biased by saying that, but... Uh, you know, check out our site. Again, it's uh, thecinemashow.com. Uh, personally, I'm just uh, wrapped up. I'm, you know, other than work, um, you know, one thing I'm really getting into right now, and I think it might be a, just a sign of my old, impending old age, is uh, I'm getting into uh, woodwork again, which is something that I was really much into in my 20s. Right now, I'm really into uh, wood burning, also known as a uh, pyrography, and I'm doing a kind of a series right now of like of different like um i guess you could say a de- deviant art you know things like punk rock flyers and um i was actually putting together some you know arrow girl influenced stuff so that's kind of like great timing that i'm on this particular episode as well as other kinds of um like interesting fringe uh, art types of elements uh and um, I don't know if I'll ever show it anywhere because, you know, no one really cares much about wood burning. People look at it as being like this kind of traditional thing where it's like, you know, do pictures of scenery and fish and animals and stuff. So, but uh, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, it'll at least maybe attract someone's attention. <laughs> and um, so I'm putting that together right now. Um, it's a very long, laborious process because, uh, burning wood is not as like easy as you might think um and it takes a lot of patience so so that's what i'm doing now rick what's happening in your world 
Uh, I am do- I'm still doing a couple podcasts. I, I've been doing uh, Shockwaves, the horror podcast for, I think we've been doing it for almost eight years now, not, not called Shockwaves that whole time, but pretty much the same crew. Uh, and that's been going pretty well. We just got um, partnered with Fangoria. So that's kind of fun to have Fangoria returning. Awesome. And it's been, you know, we've only done a couple episodes under that new partnership, but I think it's going to, you know, hopefully it will lead to doing a few more live things where we can, you know, get out there and meet people because meeting people tends to be like, you know, one of the most fun parts of doing this. And uh, uh, the show that was, uh, that you can take some uh, claim and inspiring was uh, Pure Cinema has been doing really well. Uh, but, you know, my original thought behind that show was I really love coming on Mike's show uh, talking about a movie uh, more in depth and I was like let's do something like that so I uh, wasn't trying to rip you off but uh, it definitely mm-hmm. inspired by uh, at least on my end so that show's doing well and we uh, partner with the, a movie theater here in LA where we kind of break down their calendar once a month as one of our kind of episodes uh, called The New Bev um, and that's interesting because we don't pick the movies so it's interesting to run down movies you don't select which is you know a little more challenging in that sense but uh, it's been fun Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.